Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Well, here we are back again for another great episode of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And I am just beyond excited. And I know I say that at the beginning of every interview that I've done since I started, but I ran across this gentleman's profile and the release of his third book. He's a New York Times bestselling author. And I, I was just so taken back by his words, his leadership, and what he has done in his career. So I want to welcome Dr. Vince Molinaro to the podcast this morning. And Vince is a leadership advisor. He's a speaker. Like I said, he's just written a third book that I'm really excited to talk about. And he's also the founder and CEO of Leadership Contract, Inc., and well-known across the globe as a business strategist. So, Dr. Vince, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Deb. Excited to uh, spend some time with you. Well, it's um, I'm kind of having a, a, a crushing moment here of reading parts of your book. I just got your new book that I'm excited to talk about, and I've been listening to on Audible. And I just wanted to say that... I think what struck me the most is you wrote about a defining moment that you had early in your career and you had saw a respected colleague and mentor succumb to cancer and she confided in you and alluded that she believed that diagnosis came as a byproduct of a stressful and toxic work environment. So I think I'd like to start there you you beautifully said that it was a defining moment and and was it a shift for you and what impression did that leave with you well it, you know it happened really early in my career it was my first job after you know completing my undergraduate degree uh you know the organization did really really important work it it helped some of the neediest people in society get their lives back um, you know, on track, you know, by providing financial assistance, access to uh, retraining programs uh, and the whatnot. So the purpose of the organization was compelling. Uh, and that's what drew me to, uh, to it and to the job I had as a caseworker. But when I joined, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember back then in your own life, as most of us have, you know, you join with this optimism of wanting to change the world and and I remember having that feeling, I guess at 22 or however old I was, and then joining this large bureaucratic organization and looking around, you know, the office and seeing beige walls, old desks, um, uh, beige ceilings, like there was no life, no energy, no vitality. And when I looked around at my colleagues, uh, they kind of resembled their surroundings. Though the organization had tremendous purpose and they were committed to that and committed to the clients they served. 
it seemed like the day-to-day -day work environment was was lacking and you know and there i was you know finally entering the real world kind of going is this it like is all i need to do now is show up for the next 40 years every day and be a a diligent and loyal employee and maybe they'll have a little ceremony at the end of it a little retirement party for Vince as he goes off to the next phase of his life and so that was just a thought I had had um, but always thought I saw more opportunity for that environment that work environment to be better than it was and and little did I know it you know many many months later uh, this woman Zinta who was a senior manager in the organization approached me one day and we had a chat and she said you know Vince I think you want to have more impact on this place I see you're doing great work with your clients but I think you want to have more impact and and I had no idea how she even knew that because I've never I didn't even talk to my own manager about that idea but she saw something in me that I don't even think I realized or saw in myself which I learned that's what over my career what great leaders do and, and so we set up under her leadership this small committee to turn the work environment around. And we started putting really simple things in place. And all of a sudden, this drab environment started to become more lively, you know. And I started to realize, wow, one, one person, one manager can actually affect a work environment. And everything, you know, was going kind of cool. And she believed in us and, uh, you know, and said we were the future of the organization. We're getting pumped all of these messages i was excited and i just wanted to just show up for her and, and please her and, and help her be successful and then she had to leave because she was diagnosed with lung cancer and and i didn't find out until many months later where i felt compelled to visit her um, and i did and in that visit is when she disclosed as you said in the beginning that you know she said vince i've never um i've never smoked a cigarette i've never uh you know um I have no history of lung cancer uh, in my family. I've always taken care of my health. And she was convinced that the disease she was fighting was in this toxic environment that she was in as a senior manager, which she revealed to me through many ways in which she described infighting, bickering, politicking, and it was overwhelming. You know, and two weeks after that visit, she sent me a letter, wrote me a letter at a time when people still used to write letters, challenging me around what was I going to do? Um, a letter that I kept, I still have today. Uh, and two weeks after I got that letter, she passed away. And so that defining moment for me was I had the glimmer of what it was like to work with a great leader. And I also saw what the price was that one pays if they're in a toxic environment to one's health. And now back then I kind of always questioned, was there that, was that connection there? Well, we know now through all the research that the impact of stress and a toxic work environment it has on people's health and so i left uh, you know i decided i took her words to heart and i had to leave that organization not for fear of what happened to her was going to happen to me i left because i saw what a great leader can do not to me personally only but to an organization to a work environment and i wanted to work with leaders who had that kind of standard uh who who aspired for more and and that's what i've been doing ever since in many different ways well, it certainly was a pivotal time for you. And, and I have to agree, my background's in disability case management, and I met many wonderful leaders like your colleague, and they all alluded to the same, the same kind of rationale during their end of life phase. And it, it, it's led me to, to be a volunteer every week at hospice. That's how mm -hmm. it's impacted me. It has certainly led you 
to a global path, 25 countries, 80 cities. You've seen a lot of different leadership in your time, in your professional career. Now, I know that you have stated that research has shown that teams and individual employees are overwhelmingly dissatisfied with the degree of accountability that's demonstrated by their leaders. And especially now in the middle of this pandemic, effective teams need to have responsibility and accountability leaders. And I know the solution seems so simple, but why do you feel that leadership accountability is such a major issue in organizations, especially since you have been around the globe, Vince? Yeah, well, you know, that, that kind of journey started, you know, as we, you know, it was kind of interesting. If we go back to the, the, the global financial crisis, right, 2008 timeframe, you know, at that time, um, you know, we had companies who were really looking for their leaders to step up in very significant ways. But what had happened is they were, they were recognizing that, you know, a lot of their leaders had never dealt with something significant like that kind of that degree of, of, a, of an economic, um, you know, uh, uh, catastrophe, uh, to, to use a better term. Um, but after that, kind of, we got, kind of got through that. What I also began to see was this dissatisfaction that organizations had overall. And at the heart of that dissatisfaction was this sense of, we've invested in developing our leaders but we're not seeing it translate into better leadership at a time when we need them to be stronger. So I was really puzzled by that. And I kept hearing it over and over and over again in all the organizations I was going into. So I was really trying to figure out, you know, what's at the heart of this, what's missing. And it, and it really crystallized when I went into an organization uh, meeting with the head of HR and organizational development where she kind of had the same lament. We're investing, we've got coaches in here, we're doing assessment, we're partnering with business schools, we're doing everything best practice, at least what the best practice uh, uh, are uh, at that time, but we're not seeing it translate. And then she said, it's like they don't understand what it means to be a leader. And then it was like, oh, I get it. There's something going on at a very personal level. And as I started to think about, well, what's the way forward? What I realized is we had a lot of people in leadership roles who never fully understood uh, or understand what it actually means to be a leader. Now, part of the reason is the world has became more complex and it's continued to become more complex. Certainly as we're living through the pandemic, as we're seeing the protests uh, in the U S uh, you know, as a result of, of, uh, you know, the, the tragic events that have happened over the last few weeks there uh, and have been going on for many, many years. Um, you know, and, and so that at that particular moment, it was like, yeah, it's a very complex endeavor, this leadership thing. And that's where the idea of the contract came up, is that what we've actually inadvertently done is we've given people leadership roles but oftentimes they didn't appreciate that when they take on a leadership role, they've actually signed up for something really, really important. And a lot of leaders don't really fully appreciate that. And so what we've done without really realizing it is we've, not tr we've taken on these roles, maybe for the pay, for the title, for the prestige, for the power to have, you know, make change, but not appreciate that we have signed up for something important. 
And so we've treated it a lot less like a contract that you have in paper that you got to read and sign, but more like an online contract. You know, when you're online conducting a transaction and a window pops up with the terms and conditions. And, you know, what most of us do, at least what I do oftentimes, is I never read all those terms and conditions. I scroll down to the bottom, I click agree, and I move on with my day. I know I'm bound to something, but I'm not really clear what that is. And I think that's the fundamental premise of the work around the leadership contract, which is the book that came out in, in 2013. And it immediately kind of struck a chord because people are saying that's what's missing. And when you kind of ask people, as I have, so how did you get into a leadership role in the first place? Um, you know what the number one answer is? And I've asked this around the world. I got in by accident. My manager came to me and they said, I need you to do this job. Oh yeah, you got to manage some people. And then you're thrust into the role with no support, no development. Research just got revealed last week that shows people are in leadership roles for 19 years before they get their first um, experience of formal leadership development. That's two decades of, of really trial and error, figuring it out as you go, uh, accumulating bad habits, and then we sit there and wonder, why isn't leadership stronger than it is? That's why we have a leadership accountability gap where my global research reveals 72% of companies say, this is critical, we gotta get this right, but only 31% believe they have what they need to be successful or are satisfied. So that's kind of how we've got to it. There's a real practical need to help leaders be more accountable because I've learned that by focusing on accountability, it's the fastest way to improve as a leader if you have the desire to improve. Well, it's interesting you talk about accidental leaders because it's actually my next question for you. And when I've worked with executive teams and C-suite leaders, it's interesting when you bring up that term and some of the comments, when I've inquired about how did Bob become on the executive team or how did Susan get promoted? And I often hear, well, Deb, soft skills can't be trained, but technical skills can. So I wanted you to weigh in on that, as well as the comparison now to artificial intelligence that we're seeing. And it's often, a weekly conversation within the tech sector execs that I work with in, in the replacement of some of the jobs where human beings used to fulfill that role. Well, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's always been an issue, right? So in, in, in back in 1990s, or going way back when I left that organization that I started early in my career, you know, I started my own company. And I was a career counselor at the time by training. And, and the same kind of discussions we were having about the future of work, um, you know, at, at that time, the impact of automation on manufacturing, jobs will disappear. Those, the conversations then, are very, very eerily similar to what we're experiencing today. And, you know, my take on the, and in the, the new book, uh, Accountable Leaders, you know, transformative technologies are one of the big issues we've got to deal with and how it's transforming the world of business, the world of work, and in many ways, even leadership. And so if we, if we think about AI, for an example, anything that can, you know, replace what ultimately are mundane tasks that maybe humans should have never done, but we've never had the technology to, to actually replace those tasks, um, I'm all for that. Because then it, it frees people up to, to, you know, really bring our ingenuity, our creativity, our inventiveness to do the things that machines and AI can't do. 
right? And even if you think about leadership development, um, uh, when I was in grad school, I did a course on technology and learning. And we learned about uh, this work that was done uh, in 1971 in, in early artificial intelligence work. And uh, this guy did, did this, created this program, this kind of little program to test out AI. And what he did is he created a program that modeled a counseling relationship based on Carl Rogers methodology, which was largely, you know, asking a set of open-ended questions. So this terminal, people would sit at the terminal and they would basically be given a series of open-ended questions about a problem. So that was it. So he wanted, he was only interested in the AI components, but he had his team spend some time on it. And over time, he noticed his team were spending more and more time with this AI. And they would say, I actually feel better after I spent some time. In fact, they gave it a name. They, 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 they personified it, they gave it, they made it into a person. And he was confused by that. So what that showed you back in 1971 was, we can create AI that help people uh, feel better, do better, and maybe we should in some cases, right? Now, the question that we have to ask is, is it replacing a job or replacing a task? Um, is it, is it, you know, that, that someone used to do? And then what's the leadership imperative? What's the opportunity for us to be more inventive, to free up um, uh, how, we, how we help people to use that example? I've just lived it recently now because of the lockdown. I've had aging parent issues to deal with. And my mom had an appointment with her kidney uh, specialist and it turned out we were supposed to go face to face. That didn't happen. So we ended up having our first virtual appointment with him and we were his first virtual patients. And he said, I haven't done this before. And I said, you better get ready because I think more people, me included, are going to want healthcare delivered in this way. And we, and he spent 30 minutes with us, 30 minutes. And it was a phenomenal um, uh, 30 minutes. And, and if I would have thought of what the option was, the option was I would have had to dri drive my mom to the hospital. We probably would have had to spend $30 in parking. We probably had to wait three hours because his calendar would have been backed up. Then we would have gone into his office and met him for 30 seconds. That's generally how healthcare has been uh, delivered. Now it's completely turned upside down. So in many ways, what COVID has done is accelerated these technologies that we should be adopting because it frees us up and I think allows us to create greater value and a greater experience. Now, it's not for everything, but we'll figure that out over time. So I remain optimistic while I'm aware of the potential risks that, that people write and talk about. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And again, coming from the disability management world for 23 years, I agree with you. I have a uh, aging mother-in-law who's 93. We had a similar experience and she was quite delighted. Uh, she could see the, the doctor on the big screen. It was a meaningful conversation. She didn't feel rushed. There was time to ask questions. And, and like you, I was thinking to myself, if this is the future of healthcare and medical appointments, this is going to be this is going to be a win-win for everybody because normally we get the 15 minutes under OHIP and you got to get all your questions in. And if you don't, you know, stay within the 
the constraint of, of the 15 minutes, anything else gets bumped to another visit, which could be weeks or months out. So very interesting that you had a similar yeah. experience. Well, and, and here's what's really interesting. The technology always existed, right? The technology, whether it was Zoom or MS Teams or whatever it was to have a virtual call, didn't just get introduced with COVID and, and a result of the, that, the lockdowns. It always existed. We, you know, people talked about moving there, but you needed this dramatic event to accelerate our move there. Now the question remains, how much of it will, will stay? Because I really think consumers of healthcare will not go back to the old way um, when they've had this, this, this experience. That's, that's my perspective. We'll see how it plays out. But you know, it just shows you with a lot of these technologies right now, we're talking about the impact of what can happen and what might happen. But are we really moving ahead aggressively? I think we need to think about it, have a plan around it. And that's where I think we need leaders who, and as I write about in Accountable Leaders, to have a perspective on how we do it. Because yeah, the, the, the collateral damage can be significant. And I think the leadership opportunity is how do we move ahead and implement some of these technologies, whether it's AI, machine learning, whatever, whatever it might need to be, and free people up to create jobs that really tap into what humans do exceptionally well. Um, that I think is the leadership opportunity before us. Oh, I couldn't agree more with you, Vince. And I wanna shift gears and talk to you about the struggle and why do you feel again, from your leadership perspective and the work you've done globally and in 25 countries, why do businesses struggle with mediocre performance and widening the gaps in leadership? Well, the, the, the other thing we have uncovered is that, you know, there's a, there, there, there is a problem with mediocrity, um, you know, when it, when it comes to leadership and in, 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 in Accountable Leaders, my new book, I, I, I summarize some of that research. And there's sort of five um, characteristics that have come up uh, that really defines what a mediocre leader is. And, and you can, you know, and that is a big term to encompass someone who's toxic, you know, someone who's a tyrant, a dictator, uh, who's just sure, sure bad, you know. But the, the first is they have a tendency to blame others. So that's already a lack of accountability. Uh, they're selfish and self-serving, only really worrying about themselves. Uh, they, they really mistreat others. They are uncivil and mean in how they relate to, to people. <clears throat> they are inept and largely incompetent as leaders. They just don't have a knack for it as hard as they try. And then ultimately, they lack initiative. So that's kind of you know, what, what the research um, you know, reveals. What I found most fascinating was you know, in the surveys, the open-ended questions where I asked, you know, what, what, what's the impact of working for, you know, a mediocre leader? And it's remarkable how visceral the responses are in, in the books. I'll read one. I, you know, a uh, great one. Slowly but surely, I feel like I'm dying a little, at, a little at a time in my job. It's soul destroying, right? You know, this is, this is how people feel and experience working for a mediocre leader. Uh, another one, mediocrity does not inspire people to do their best work or go above and beyond what they already do. And this is what we have to understand is that with leadership, you have a choice, a decision to make on the kind of ripple effect you want to have on your organization. And mediocre leaders have a, have a really negative ripple effect where you have someone that says, 
I don't, I'm not even motivated to go above and beyond, you know, in, in my role. As much as I may want to, that person doesn't inspire me to do so. And so what I've also learned is organizationally, 20% uh, of the companies we surveyed actually do something about it, which means 80% don't. And as I've traveled the world and I've asked, what's going on there? I can't tell you how many times that people have said, we know who they are. We just don't know how to help them. And so we just leave them there, hoping someday they'll, they'll get better. Or um, what happens a lot is, it's quite surprising, is we, we take them out of the business and we move them into the HR function where we think they'll have less damage on the company, realizing, no, you need your strongest leaders in HR. It's one of the most important functions in any company. So we really have to come to terms with this. And in the book, I've got a whole chapter dedicated to how an organization has to address it. You're going to need resolve. You're going to need courage, but you're going to need zero tolerance on it. Otherwise, you're never going to get there as, a, as an organization, not with the challenges we're facing, particularly today. Well, it's so interesting that you say the, the five things that you listed, because I can tell you being in the executive coaching space, this comes up almost daily when I'm talking to leaders. And why aren't they having that resolve and that courage and that zero tolerance to change? And, and when you list those five characteristics, the blame, the selfishness, the mistrust, the incompetence, and the lack of initiative, number one, it's a two-part question. How did these people get promoted or land in these roles? And number two, why do executive teams and C-suite leaders keep them there? Yeah, well, that, that, that's kind of, you know, that, that's kind of the, uh, uh, to use the old cliche, the $64,000 question. Now, let, let's, let's kind of try to tackle it uh, together. So when I said before, when I've asked people, how do they get into a leadership role that they got in by accident, right? That's, that's one of the challenges. How do people get into leadership roles? Well, what I have found is getting in by accident is number one. The research shows, Gallup has done this research, the number two reason people get into leadership roles is that they excel at something technical. They were the best engineer, the best salesperson, the best teacher, the best analyst. Uh, it doesn't matter what the area of expertise is, but when you are a strong individual performer, you excel at something technical, you stand out from everyone else. And organizations have had a very common practice for decades of going to those people and say, you are so good at this. Now we're going to promote you into this other job that has very little to do with what you were really good at. And we're going to promote you. And now you kind of, you know, you want to make your organization have to be happy. So you say, sure. Well, why wouldn't you take it? It's got a promotion. Uh, it usually comes with more pay. The titles are, are, <clears throat> sound cooler. So who doesn't want to be a vice president of so-and-so? Uh, you do have legitimately more opportunity to have impact on an organization, but it doesn't work all the time, right? Now, the third reason people move into leadership roles, as the research is, is tenure. You've been around longer than everyone else. So, you know, let's give it to good old, um, you know, uh, Bob, or, you know, let's, let's give it to Marcella or whomever, you know, they've been with us for 10 years or 15 years. They deserve it. Whether they want it or not is almost irrelevant. <laughs> Whether they're motivated for the role is almost irrelevant. It's we think that tenure is de facto, uh, 
you know, qualify someone for, for a leadership role. And I think those are some of the issues. Now you combine that with the earlier stat I said, which is, you know, most leaders, particularly a lot of research, I have it in my book, you know, a, a, you know two thirds, I think, of frontline leaders never get any development. Um, and, and now we find out with more current research that people are in a leadership role for 20 years before they get any formal, formal development. You can understand how this mediocrity kind of seeps in. Now, not everyone succumbs to it, right? Um, people have to be really committed. And I think that's what people fail to understand. So when I talk about the leadership contract and its four terms, it's a decision. That's the first one. You've got to decide and you've got to know yourself well enough to say, you know what? Leadership is not for me. And that's a great decision. We need more people with the honesty uh, and the strength of character to say that. Now, it's not, a, it's not saying no forever, but if you say, you know what? I think I'm going to add more value being the best engineer I can be at this company. I don't need to become a leader. We need more people to do that. And we got to give them the freedom to do that because the other factor that I've learned is that in a lot of companies, culturally, when someone gets offered a leadership role, if you say no, it'll never be offered again. And so people feel tremendous pressure to say yes, because it's a legitimate way to make more money. It's a legitimate way to have a better title. And so we've got to come to terms with these things that are going on. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying, let's put a spotlight on it and let's try to correct this because it's, it's really created this mess that we're all kind of feeling. Well, I'm happy you're putting the spotlight on it because I talk about this every day with my clients and I am... I am beyond happy having this uh, real conversation with you. Now, what I'm seeing when I'm coaching these people is there's that resistance to authority because here they are under this person's supervision who they don't respect because they're looking at them thinking, how did you get in this position? You have this stature, this title, but the leadership is not there. And it really does surface issues about trust. And then going one level deeper, there's a lack of discipline and structure on the executive team. So what are some of your best strategies or advice to the listeners for if they're in this role? Because we're, we're really deflating the elephant today, Vince. And, and I'd love leaders listening to this to really feel that they're not alone. You've, you've been around the world. You've seen this in multiple sectors and industries. What are some easy compensatory strategies that can maybe even move the needle just a little bit? Well, I think it begins, you know, there's a number of ways to, to, to think about it. But uh, what, what, I, what I've learned over time is there's sort of a dual response. There's, there's an individual response. So we've got to take personal accountability. And then there's sort of an organizational response. So what we've learned through our, through, through our work and with clients is, you know, the leadership contract really addresses that individual response. So you've got to be, you know, honest with yourself and, and really kind of go through a reflective process of what have I signed up for? Am I all in? Am I clear on what I'm obligated to? Do I have the courage to tackle the hard work? And am I building a sense of community in the organization? So you've got to do that kind of yourself. But then what we also learned is, uh, and it's similar to, or very aligned with what you just kind of uh, talked about, is this sense of, um, you know, clients saying, yeah, this is great, you know, uh, particularly when they brought in the leadership contract and it's like, we're seeing the impact it's having on our leaders, 
but we need them to build accountable teams and we need them to work with other leaders across the organization to really create a strong leadership culture. And so that's the work that we have that we have to do. And in the book, I kind of map that out. So it's not, a, you know, you, you have to kind of begin with yourself for sure, but then you have to also talk about how do you do it with your team. And, and so the, the dual, the dual responses, I call it really maps out uh, what leaders can do. So the, the book talks about, okay, here's how you hold others accountable. And, and, and that's one of the, the strategies. Second, here's how you create an accountable team where there's real clarity around what the purpose of the team is, what they're there to do, but also there's a deep commitment to stepping up and, and being accountable. And three, and this is what I hear a lot of, is we need our leaders to understand that they're the ones who actually create culture. And, and, and I kind of, in the book, talk about it, here's how you do it, right? So those are the things we can do as a leader. But then there are those who have another obligation, the CEO, the head of HR, senior executives, who have to make sure that they're supporting leaders as they do that work by putting things in place organizationally. So for example, I talk about, you've got to create a leadership contract for your organization. You have to set clear expectations that set the standard for everyone to say, here's what it means to be a leader in our company. My research shows 49, only 49% of companies actually do this. So imagine if you're working in a company and you know, that's, that's not clear. What it means to be a leader is not clear. You can imagine how you get confusion and, and a disparate of approaches to leadership that aren't really aligned to a company's strategy. So that's just one example of, of what an organization needs to do that I, that I kind of map up. But back to your, you know, but also to kind of come back to your earlier point, what if you find yourself, right, in an environment where you're with a leader that is mediocre, that you don't respect? And that's a tough place to be, particularly if you yourself want to be an accountable leader. I, I've been there. And you know, a client of mine uh, shared once advice from her father uh, when she was having a conversation, um, you know, with him when she was frustrated, you know, with the person that was leading her. And, you know, he said, you know, lead as you know you must lead, don't lead as you are being led. And that, I think, is what makes leadership hard. When you find yourself in that situation, when it feels like you're butting your head against a wall every day, you're being uninspired, um, you have to find a way to rise above that because the, the, the risk is you kind of just give up and then all of a sudden you're on a slippery slope and before you know it, you've become mediocre. And so that I think is what we have to learn to do. Not easy, not at all easy, but that's I think what the role demands. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes sense and I think that's where leaders develop grit and tenacity and are I always say growth comes from the valley is kind of the metaphor that I use and you know I had an Irish nana who taught me that people come into your life for a reason a season or a lesson and and as soon as you figure out that equation then you know how to behave and respond yeah. And it's really about having, you know, that emotional reg regulation to be proactive. And again, yeah. really adaptability to grit and tenacity. So yeah. well, I, 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 think, I think just to add on that, the other thing that I've learned through, through, my, um, uh, through my own leadership experiences, because, you know, I've led you know, kind of global teams and, and, and whatnot, is um, the other variable is 
So you go back to my experience early in my career with my, my colleague Zinta. As I look back, you know, after all those years, I, was, I realized I was very fortunate early in my career to be exposed to someone who I thought was a great leader and to see the impact she had, not just on me, but on this organization. So I saw that early. And, and what I've always said is that, you know, once you work for a great leader, they kind of ruin you forever. And what I mean by that is you have seen and experienced what great looks like. And whenever you encounter a mediocre leader or a bad leader or a toxic one, I have found my tolerance is not, I, I have very low tolerance of that because I realize like life's too short, right? To waste it working for a crappy leader. And so that's what I think we have to understand, right? Now, you know how many people that I've talked to would say, I've never worked for a great leader in my life. I don't even know what it feels like to be mentored, to be coached, to be guided, to have someone who you feel like is behind you, supporting you every step of the way. I've never experienced that. So back to your earlier point, why do we, why do we have a sea of mediocrity and leadership in our organizations? It's because a lot of people have never experienced it. So they don't demand it. You know, millennials, I think millennials have had, that's been their biggest impact on organizations. They are much maligned unfairly, I believe, right? But if you think about it, they have come into organizations expecting to work with great leaders. And when they don't get it and didn't get it, what do they do? They leave. Because somehow they've learned through their boomer or Gen X parents who had to endure bad leaders and see the impact on saying, that's not, I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to put up with that in my career. Right. And so that are all of the kind of factors kind of intermingling with one another to create the kind of conditions we're facing. Well, I agree with you. And I just celebrated 30 years in my own business at the end of May and four years out of university, fellow Brock University grad like you. I, um, I fell exactly into that and learned this year on International Women's Day from a keynote speaker at an event that I was uh, speaking at, that I was a, I'm gonna say a recipient, cause I don't like the word victim, but I was a recipient of tall poppy syndrome. And if I hadn't known then what that was all about, um, it probably would have crafted a different trajectory for me as well. But I truly believe we land where we're supposed to land and, and go through the different valleys as we're supposed to. So just such an inter interesting conversation. See, Vince, I told you I could sit and talk to you all day, but I, uh, I've got your book. I want to get a real copy of the hard copy of uh, your book because I purchased it, purchased it on Audible. So I'm listening to it during my walks and my self-care time. So I look forward to getting an autographed copy. And I end the podcast with what I call the Fab Four. So these are just four questions, the kind of questions you don't think about. You just let me know kind of what answer's sitting right there. So here's my first question. What's the one word that your friends and family would use to describe you? Um, 
two come to mind, uh, disciplined and uh, aspirational. Those seem, those seem quite right for the, for the short time I've known you. I, I, I would have to agree. And what would be your favorite memory as it relates to your career? Hmm. That's a, that's a cool one. You know, I, certainly the experience I had at Knightsbridge when I led the leadership practice, um, we did, um, you know, had a, just an absolutely amazing team. Um, the company was, had a, you know, great culture. We had become a dominant brand, um, you know, in Canada, expanding aggressively in the U.S., and it wasn't until uh, as we were doing that expansion and I was part of networking groups with competitors where I began to realize uh, as I was introducing myself, I would hear, oh, we know about you and we know about Knightsbridge. And I go, you do? Well, we're just this little Canadian company. They go, no, you're not. Uh, we can't figure out how to beat you. Uh, and, and that was sort of gratifying from the standpoint <laughs> of we had we had really done something amazing that you don't even sometimes realize yourself and and that was kind of cool but it was just based on the impact of the great team um that we were able to assemble what a great memory and what a great compliment right you mm -hmm. here you are your own self-audit as a small company and and just the other way you were perceived that's interesting what transferable skill as a leader do you think you bring to fatherhood that, that is um, really interesting in terms of, um, you know, I've of, I often get asked when I, when I do keynotes around, do you see the parallels between parenting and leading? And there's, there's actually, you know, many, many, many uh, parallels. Uh, for me, it's all about, you know, the, it's the example that you set, uh, you know, um, and that as we say to leaders, you know, your employees are always watching you, right? Well, it's more so at the home front. <laughs> Uh, and, and so it's what is the example that you set to your children? Uh, because I think in many ways, leadership can be vicarious uh, and, and they are absorbing things about you, about what's important, about what you really stand for. Um, they're very good at calling out, uh, you know, the gap between what you say and what you do. So the example that you set, I think, is, is critical. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you there. And my last question, because it's one of the, the foundational language of my brand is around self-care. So I always like to ask leaders, and I'll use the word busy in quotes, what is your favorite self-care activity and do you do it every day? Uh, well, I've got, I've got a few, right? So I work out every day. And, and so that's important. You know, the work of Stephen Covey was um, important to me when Seven Habits came out. And I always loved his idea of the private victory, right? So we need to, before we can have a public victory, we need to have a private victory. And a private victory can be self-care and the discipline to, to do that. So most early mornings, I'm in my fitness room on the treadmill doing workout, uh, you know, body weight. And then and then to complement that, you know, it's, it's tennis, it's uh, hiking, bike riding through woods. Those are the things that um, I do as well. Well, that's a great list. I like to end my podcast with kind of my, my favorite five things that I think make a heart-centered leader. And that is to follow your heart, to have passion, to do your best, know your truth, and be in love with the journey. 
The joy is in the journey because there is no destination. So Dr. Vince, thank you for your time, your leadership. I'm going to let everybody know about your new book. We'll put a link to that. And I just really appreciate you spending time with me today on the Imperfect Podcast. Thanks, Deb. It was a great conversation and really appreciate the opportunity and wish you continued success.